Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Lloyd Mander all about the DOT scorecard. Now, this is a tool to think about governance and who's sitting around the boardroom table. I really enjoyed this conversation, and if you do too, why not check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog, as I've spoken with more than 300 other people. Now, let's get straight into this conversation with Lloyd. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Lloyd Mander, who's the founder of the DOT Scorecard. Thank you for joining me. Hello, Stephen. Great to see you. I'm really happy that you're here because I've wanted to talk to you for a long time because our lives have intersected in various ways in the last few years. So we see each other at IOD-related events, Ministry of Awesome type of things, um, governance-related things. So we've gotten to know each other fairly well, but I don't know your whole background. And so the purpose of the podcast is to get to know people better and then find out about what they're doing today. And I know this concept of diversity of thought is something that you've been wrestling with for a few years. So I want to know more about that. But before we talk about that, let's go back in the time machine. Where were you living when you were, say, five years old? And what was life like for you? So Otatahi Christchurch, so not not so far from where we are today, really. So I born born and bred here. Mm -hmm. And I grew up as an only child. Uh, I grew up with a, a weird fascination for entrepreneurship, even before I knew the word at the time. I was the kind of child that would be selling things or trying to sell things down the end of the driveway. Um, I tried to sell uh, pens made from papyrus. Not, not, a, not a hot seller, unfortunately. I <laughs> made a um, marketing plan and brand campaign for vegetables. Again, you know, pretty cute, but not, not very effective. Um, I even tried to launch a newspaper at school. Not not because I was a great journalist, but just because I saw it as a uh, commercial opportunity. Right. Interesting. And where do you think that had come from? Is that just like nature versus nurture? That's just you're born with it? I feel like that's probably one of those nature things. Cause mm. my, my parents had sort of uh, jobs in teaching and sort of technical things at the hospital. So yeah. so they, it wasn't a pursuit or a, a pathway they had taken, but I think it was just sort of in me, in me from day zero. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. So you mentioned only child. Um, yeah, what's that like growing up? I had one sister, but that obviously there's dynamics when there's a sibling because there's often a bit of fighting going on and a bit of, you know, some back and forth about you did this. No, I didn't do that. It's your fault. What what was it like as an only child, though? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that what you're talking about there, that sort of idea of learning how to deal with conflict and how to collaborate and those sort of things. I guess for me, it meant that I was always someone who's quite comfortable in their own company because that would happen at times. But perhaps also someone when they're around other people uh, do try and make the most of that opportunity too because it wasn't an opportunity uh, every day. Mm. So it's that classic thing. It's always hard when you say, what was it like for you? Well, I don't actually know what the alternative was like. But yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah so pretty normal for me and something I was uh, comfortable with mm. certainly at the time. Yeah. And so the entrepreneurship side, did that continue through primary school? high school years was that you were always looking for little projects yeah very much so and I guess I guess my, my definition for entrepreneurship now is very much trying to solve problems in a way where you can actually have a viable or a sustainable business model mm -hmm. and so I'd say that the uh, my first stage of my entrepreneurial journey was very much into that identifying problems um, that I would try and solve uh, the viable or sustainable business model part has certainly come a bit later to actually start to achieve that yeah. but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely something that affected that and probably affected my study choices and other, other things as well. Mm. So what, what were some of your study choices? What interested you, you know, maybe through your teenage years? Uh, I think at that stage I was, I was interested in uh, healthcare, so interested in options like medicine. Um, but I ended up sort of finding my way into uh, audiology, which is... Uh, a little bit of a niche area. Uh, some might be familiar with it. So it's around hearing. It's around um, assessing and understanding how well people hear for their communication, uh, supporting uh, better hearing usually through technology. So ear, nose and throat specialists might do surgical procedures to help where they can with hearing, but audiologists help where hearing aids and other assistive devices are required. Mm. Um, so that's sort of the direction I ended up 
traveling. Um, but in some ways, initially at least, I really pursued that because I saw it as a, a commercial opportunity, if anything. I could sort of see we're using technology, which is evolving all the time, to help people with a really significant problem that does impact on their lives. And, and often it's a, it's a problem that we see in those that are older adults, which is mm. you know, a growing population yeah. um, that need to be supported. So that yeah. was my sort of initial, I suppose, interest in the area. Yeah. So even before you studied it formally, you were still thinking like the entrepreneurship side of what this could be? 100%, yeah. Whereas others that my, my sort of peers in audiology had usually uh, pursued it more because they, they liked the different activities that are involved, they liked the sort of consulting and the sort of specialist knowledge and the caring mm-hmm. for patients kind of perspective. I have to say for me, I did actually develop all of those things and did really enjoy uh, working with um, a range of age groups from newborn babies and assessing their hearing using um, specialist equipment through to working with older adults and and learning about their lives and trying to support you know their quality of life and things I enjoyed all those elements but but it sort of uh, was back to front for me I suppose I yeah, approached it commercially first and then sort of developed an interest and a passion uh, over time by being involved right interesting and how do you become an audiologist like where do you go to study or what does that involve yeah, so audiology tends to be a postgraduate qualification. So often people will do a, an undergraduate degree in psychology or physiology. In my case, I did an undergraduate degree in linguistics, just due to the nature of the, the subjects I'd taken in my first year of university. And yeah, so that was, that was the, my stepping stone into it. And audiology involves a mixture of uh, study of the auditory system, um, physiology, uh, neurophysiology, and uh, a lot of laboratory, practical clinical work and placements and internships like you see in other healthcare settings as well. Yeah, I guess like any topic, any subject at all in the world, we could pick anything. Mm. And once you look at it, you realize that there's dozens and dozens and dozens of books written on a particular aspect of it too. You know, like it's, it's one of those unfolding things, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, it's quite a, yeah, it's, if you explore it, you don't, most people won't uh, think it exists, but uh, if you know about it, then you're right. There's an endless sort of stream of knowledge and development, and it continues to evolve. Um, when I qualified as an audiologist, there were only about 100 audiologists in New Zealand, so wow. it had, was quite a uh, new and sort of emerging uh, profession. Uh, now there's uh, several hundreds. So it's still not, not massive compared to other healthcare areas, mm-hmm. but, but certainly grown a lot. Yeah. And where did you go to study that sort of a course. So I, I did my uh, linguistics uh, undergraduate degree in Dunedin. Uh, I, I could have done that anywhere in New Zealand. All our fine universities offer linguistics, but for me it was a chance to get away from home, really, I suppose, and hang out with my my mates uh, down in Dunedin and have a bit of a student experience down there. Mm-hmm. And for audiology itself, I did that in Auckland. Um, it's available uh, here at the University of Canterbury now as well, but at that time Auckland was the only place in New Zealand to do it. And I remember at the time um, going up to Auckland to do an interview uh, for, for my admission into the audiology school. And my academic transcript and the subjects I'd taken didn't quite perfectly fit the template of what they're actually looking for. Uh, linguistics wasn't is it the mainstay uh, way that people entered into audiology. Um, but because I was someone who came, I guess, with a longer term interest in studying audiology, uh, be it, be it for more um, entrepreneurial reasons, perhaps, rather than uh, patient reasons initially, they were so enthusiastic uh, to, have, to have my application that I think they gave me the most thorough uh, tour of the building I've ever had any building, where they showed me <laughs> sort of the broom closet and showed me, you know, all these various little niches of the, of the building, um, just as a reflection of their enthusiasm. So that was, that was quite an experience too. Yeah. yeah. And so if, at that time, if there's 100 across the country, that means that there's just a small number of people studying it, right? Yeah, so I, I, was, I was, I guess, part of an initial sort of growth phase. And so I was in a, a cohort of 10 people. So you can see quite a you know, rate of expansion at that time. Mm-hmm. And because we were, we were just 10, uh, we were you know, in each other's pockets, basically, sort of studying and, and doing clinical placements together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, became quite close. And I think uh, we're due for our sort of 25-year anniversary, I think, next year. So it'd be great to, great to get together with those people again. And, and some of them, um, like myself, have perhaps sort of stepped back from clinical audiology, uh, whereas others are still very much involved. But um, yeah, really interesting group of people and mm-hmm. um, a really different study experience being with a group of 10 rather than being at a you know, university course where you might, you know, even at postgraduate, have sort of 30 people or, or mm-hmm. a larger number. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's really, the whole topic interests me because when you think about our senses and how important they are, you know, for those of us who are able to hear, we just sort of take it for granted, right? Like I'm, we're, we're having a conversation, I'm listening to you, and I, I haven't ever really thought about the fact that I can even hear what you're saying. And yet for many people, this would be a massive roadblock to, um, you know, ha- having a life which is as fulsome as it could be. Um, so that must have been a part of it as well, right? Like It's definitely a great way to um, develop empathy for people, I guess, that are really understanding the spectrum of different sensory experience, as you described, that people have, that you, you do take it for granted. Uh, sometimes if, if people that you might encounter just in normal life on the street and things, I mean, people you know, have good days and bad days. Sometimes people might react in a way that you thought, well, that's, that doesn't seem how I'd expect them to react. But sometimes it's purely just because of, from a sensory perspective, they haven't heard you properly when you've asked them a question or, or tried to explain some information or they've misheard you mm. um, or, or they're, they're really taxing their brain to try and strain to hear you and all those sort of impact on them. So mm. I guess for me personally... Um, having had the, the privilege, I guess, of um, working with you know different patients over many years, uh, did give me that perspective of people's you know life experience and things, the way that they perceive the world uh, does you know does really impact them and therefore impact those around them mm. as well. And maybe that's something for each of us, and I'm including myself in this group, the listeners mm. as well, just to be sensitive of that. Because I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a relatively crowded room. So a lot of people chattering, you know, we've been in those functions. And I was talking to someone and he said, do you mind if we switch places, which seemed like an odd thing to ask. And then he explained, well, I'm actually deaf in my right ear. Mm. I, I can't actually hear you because you're talking into this this side. And I just need, let's just switch places. So it's a simple thing, but that would potentially be a, a block for somebody to... And that's, like, and that's fantastic to hear that he did that because mm. that, that required, I guess, for him to have... Uh, to feel confident enough and in his uh, relationship with you uh, to ask you that question, to not be embarrassed to do that. And that's, and I'm a massive advocate for that. And that's for those that are hearing impaired, but also for others in other situations as well. Mm. Um, it's a little bit like the old adage that you can only uh, manage what you can measure. But if you, if you don't know about something, you can't address it. And mm. people, people generally want the best for others. They want others to be comfortable. They want others to be able to participate fully. Um, but so often they don't even sort of oblivious, I suppose, to those yeah. things. So that's really a really wonderful thing that that person did to, yeah. to be proactive and, and make that small change just to, to help out in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's actually a deeper principle at work here, mm. which is how people present isn't necessarily everything about them. And what I mean by that is that we're all going through something at some point, whether it's my, you know, my father is sick and I'm worried about him and he might get COVID or, you know, or I'm um, worried about this deal that's happening over here and why haven't I heard back from the bank or whatever it is. Quite often we bring, you know, the perception we have isn't necessarily, and I, I, I love the word you said, empathy, you know, yeah. like, how are you, how are you going? How are you doing? I think, and that's yeah, that's and that's a thing we can all all do more of and be more proactive. And I think building on your concept there, yeah, we we just don't know what's happening under the surface, mm-hmm. uh, what people say to us about you even if, if someone says well Stephen is this or Stephen is that uh, it says a lot about them as much as it says about you mm-hmm. um, because of course influenced by all those other things and one of my I guess one of my diversity of thought um, principles that I tend to focus on is this concept that people are really multi-dimensional so whilst we do uh, tend to understand bits of people from what they look like um, how they act what they do there are many many different dimensions of people um, that we may never discover, um, but they're, they're all there under the surface and they're having an impact, of course, on, on how they think, but how they act as well. Mm, yeah, that's really good. Now, just before we go on to your sort of first jobs and, mm. you know, the career that you had in audiology, I wanted to ask you, because we had lunch before this recording, which was really enjoyable, mm-hmm. and we were talking about a course that you did at university on metaphor, I think it was. Can you describe what that was? Well, it was interesting because despite linguistics being my uh, undergraduate uh, degree, it wasn't actually a strength of mine. Um, but of course, you had to take certain papers to fulfill the requirements of the qualification. 
and uh, one of the higher level courses I had to take uh, was on uh, the metaphor and so I got to uh, read some specialist texts on that and at the time as, as quite a young person I must confess that I did think uh, if ever there's, there's a subject that's going to be wasting my life it's the subject on the metaphor uh, but of course as the years go by you start to learn that metaphor is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful for the way uh, I perceive things about the world myself. It's a great opportunity to uh, make communication more effective when we're trying to share other concepts with other people as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, in your, in your work and your writing and things, it certainly you know, has a part to, part to play as well. Mm. I think to make the complex simple, if you can use pictures, if you can use stories, you know, metaphor, parables, all these sorts of ways of describing, it just has a much deeper impact. And that's what I'm trying to do more of these days, because I just see that it's sort of superficial if you're just talking about, I don't know, as an example, section 131 of the Companies Act says, blah, blah, blah. But if you paint can, such an evocative picture, Steve, oh. when you say section 131. Oh, that one. I was looking at that one last night. <laughs> <laughs> I want to find out about that one. But if you can say, you know, here's a real life situation of somebody and here's what they're going through. All of a sudden it, it, it changes, you know, like think of a charity and you read the annual report and it says, uh, we helped 51 families to access clean water. That's one way of saying it. But if you can say, this is Lucy, she's six years old. She can now drink safe, clean water. And there's a picture of Lucy with some water, you know, like it, that just evokes so much more than, it's a totally different stats. experience, really, and it's yeah, just that level of engagement you can achieve with that. Mm-hmm. I guess my, I mean, my learning, I suppose, beyond the, the usefulness of the metaphor is also you don't know how things are going to um, come back to benefit you in a positive way sometimes in the future. I mean, obviously, sometimes things we do now can come back in a negative way. Uh, don't pay my uh, tax bill, and then a few years later I you know, have a bigger tax bill or a, a date in court. But, uh, but yeah, some of the things we do, whether it's, our, I guess, our parents encourage us to do things or experiences we have, maybe at the time you're kind of going, there's not a lot of value from that. But sometimes actually down the track, you discover that, you know, there's a lot more value than what mm. you anticipate. Yeah, that's so true. Mm. Looking back and reflecting on life and what you learned and when, and at the time you probably thought, oh, I'll get a credit, but that's all. And in fact, it, it becomes important later on. So you get to the end of your course. Uh, yeah. Tell us about what you do as an audiologist. Like, where do you work, or what? Yeah, what happened next? Yeah, so most audiologists in New Zealand work in private practice. So a little bit like optometrists, I suppose, and mm. glasses. So in some ways, audiology is like the ear equivalent of optometry. Um, so generally, working in private practice, and I, I did that as well. I, I sort of went straight from graduation to, to running in a small audiology practice. I did also work at the hospital as well, and so. Uh, audiologists work at hospitals to support uh, surgeons with assessment pre and post surgical procedures to identify hearing loss in newborn babies and those sort of things as well. Some hospitals provide uh, hearing aid services for children as well. And so I had a bit of a mixed um, a mixed experience, which is really useful, definitely from a building clinical um, practice and experience. Um, and after a few years with a business partner, I founded my own practice, a practice at that time that was called Hearing Advantage. So quite a sort of says what is on the tin uh, kind of brand name for it. Mm-hmm. And, and that practice grew to seven different locations throughout the northern half of the South Island. Um, we had quite a, I suppose, a simple um, purpose statement or uh, that sort of set our, our values, which was we, we intended to look after everyone the way we'd like our mum to be looked after. And, right. that, and that really resonated with our staff. So it did really help, you know, help to build a strong culture. And mm. so looking back, we were very lucky and it was a privilege to sort of work with those people at that time. Mm. And um, yeah, we, we made, you know, made good progress you know, commercially, but kind of culturally as well, mm. and uh, ran that business for seven years until it was sold back in 2011. Right, interesting. And that, I just have a question, it's a very specific question, but sometimes you're having to give bad news to people, mm. and you know, like this is permanent damage to your, you know, you're not going to recover this hearing. How do you, how do you do that? Did you develop any skills or thoughts about 
delivering bad news? It, maybe it comes back to the word we said earlier, which is empathy. Yeah, I'm, I'm I think that's, that's probably fair. Yes, I think an empathetic <laughs> approach is, is quite appropriate. And in some ways, even, you know, the, the most tricky thing you could imagine would be um, when we'd be assessing the hearing of uh, newborn babies. Mm. So newborn babies, the reason they have their... It's really more of an auditory function test rather than a hearing test. They're too young to respond reliably behaviorally uh, to sound, but they can um, have their brain waves measured to see if they're able to detect sounds. Right. And so we do that because the outcomes um, for babies, if they're assisted with hearing aids, if that's the appropriate remedy, is so much better if you can identify them at a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. So at one point of time, a few decades ago, if I identified them by age three, you were thought to have found them early enough, but then we discovered this sort of no age is too early. So therefore, mm-hmm. even you know from the first days of life, if we can identify that there's an issue there and start to assist with that, um, that's going to be highly beneficial for their brain development and their ability to develop their hearing system and their communication oh, capabilities. So, so that's a real priority. And so, so I have been in situations where you know in, in a role. I would be um, testing a newborn infant. You imagine you've got a newborn, right? Yeah. Your pride and joy. You couldn't love them anymore in the world. You have great expectations around their future and what it's going to be like. And then you've got someone explaining that you know you've been in this quiet room uh, with some headphones on their ears and things, or some earphones in their ears for a period of time. There's curves on the screen, and then you're sitting down with them and having to explain. Well, look, we've 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 done the testing. This is the way the testing works. Um, these are the um, results we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've tried these different sound stimuli. Um, we, we'd, when we do that, we want to see a response, you know, in the brain to that sound stimuli in a certain way. In this case, you know, with your child, uh, we're not seeing that response. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means then that we're going to take this next step to confirm um, whether mm-hmm. there's a diagnosis there of hearing loss. And from them, we're, we're then going to support you through, you know, other steps to address that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, one of the more difficult conversations I think you can imagine yeah. and, and certainly one that does, yeah, what is delivered with empathy um, and probably, I, I suppose, in some ways, it's not, not a single conversation either. It's sort of building up a picture over time Um Re- retesting and reconfirming the results, you know, to be to have a very high level of confidence mm. that you know you've you've diagnosed it correctly, mm. um, making sure they understand because people, of course, don't. Once they hear bad news, often they sort of stop uh, listening and processing the information, and so yeah, um, diff- very you know difficult. But I said ultimately to get the best outcome for the child, very necessary. Mm. And I I like the elements that you were building into that answer, which is the next steps. Mm. You know, being clear on that and we will be here to support you. I think you said both of those things. Yeah. So that would be a big part of the messaging to, to get that across. I'm always just trying to pick out bits from a person's experience that mm. then can be applicable to other scenarios. Because obviously, probably nobody listening right now is an audiologist, but we all probably deal with situations where we have to deliver some news, which is difficult. So, yeah. So once you sell a business like that, what comes next? I'm really curious because you're you're an entrepreneur by nature, right? We heard that in your childhood. You've built up this business. It's now sold. What happens the day after? Well, I guess um, building a business uh, is a big commitment. And um, at least the way I did it, sacrifices were made. And I'd say, if anything, the main sacrifice is related to relationships. So relationships within my family. So, you know, time away from my, my wife and kids, time away from my friends, time away from you know, other family members. Um, so I did have some, um, some deficits, I suppose, to make up on. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably the first priority was to actually, uh, you know, commit to spending more time with people, to uh, devoting my effort, energy into things to support them. Um, so that was sort of number one. Um, number two, I, I went to do some more study. Um, back when I, for, for again, sort of suppose related to the interest in entrepreneurship and business, I'd always wanted to do an MBA, a Master of Business Administration, um, but I'd been so busy, ironically, with my business, I didn't have time to, <laughs> right. time to do the MBA to help the business by doing the MBA. Yeah. So I did it after selling the business, which was not the norm. Most people doing an MBA are in the midst of doing something else as well, which at least they can apply the, the learnings uh, straight away. 
Um, but that was a really good um, reset, I suppose, because in some ways when you've had something that's been quite all-consuming, if you have too much of a big sort of gap afterwards, you might um, sort of lose your way and mm. that might sort of impact on your well-being in, in other ways. Uh, but for me, I was able to sort of dive in and, and do the study and I'd, I'd be looking forward to it for a long time. I could really sort of fully commit myself to it alongside doing a better job with my relationships as well. Uh, and and it yeah it was really really interesting and it, the I did the the one here at the University of Canterbury very leadership focused um, very aligned with my approach to leadership which is really around enabling others you know supporting uh, them to make decisions rather than you having to hold all the decisions yourself as as the the leader or the top leader um, yeah supporting the development of others more generally so I really enjoyed those elements of it it filled in some gaps around uh, finance and in areas where I hadn't done any specific study mm-hmm. as well which was useful um, yeah and that, that I guess sort of bridged, bridged the gap to where I thought well what next after that well I thought well I'd I'd love to do something where I'm not going to uh, stop my, my wife from pursuing her career she was sort of finding her way and she's ended up doing a a master's degree in conservation and ecology and she's working in that sort of space now which is fantastic so I wanted to do something that was flexible enough uh, to enable that um, be the one that was there for the kids and things in their early years and so I thought well, what about this thing called governance that at that time I um, really didn't know much about but uh, I, I guess I was open to exploring. Mm. It's interesting isn't it because in your case you'd been running a business and kind of like you know, leading a business and making decisions and and all that, but that the word governance was probably not deeply embedded in your practices at that point. But then today, what you're doing is lots about governance. So, talk to us about that transition from not really knowing much about governance to then, yeah, the first steps, I guess, into what would governance involve? Yeah, and even even describing it as not really knowing much about governance, I think you're, you're being quite charitable, actually, <laughs> Stephen. Um, I think I really was a blank slate. In my own business, uh, I had a, a business partner, and so uh, we were directors, and so we were fulfilling some governance obligations as part of that. But we really didn't understand governance as a concept. And, of course, I look back now and go, wow, that, that business could have been a lot more if I had actually understood what I know now, but that's the life tourism in general, I think, of course. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, wanted, I, I engaged with governance, I suppose, to engage more with the community. So I wanted to, wanted to know what's happening in other parts of the community, and I could see governance as a, as a way to do that. I did want an opportunity to make a contribution, um, I felt that you know I had, I had whilst there was still lots of learning to be done, I had uh, learned a few things that I wanted to share and add value for others. Um, so my first step was to join the Institute of Directors, the IOD, um, in 2014, and again, not really with much expectation. Really, just sort of started to turn up to some local events put on by the branch. Um, in, in anticipation of doing some training and courses and things mm-hmm. down the track. I soon discovered that I'd, I'd sort of joined at the time where there's somewhat of a, a positive wave towards governance. Governance had become one of those things that it was a bit of a trendy thing to be involved in. So so whether I was somewhat influenced by that trend and just sort of uh, jumping on board the trend or had sort of found my own uh, independent way in there. Um, but it's certainly one of those things that you, you do benefit from courses and uh, but being a practitioner is, of course, critical for developing any kind of aptitude mm-hmm. and governance. And so I was keen to obtain a governance role. I uh, applied for many different governance roles unsuccessfully. And uh, eventually I, I applied for one and got, got the role. So my first, um, I guess, serious governance role was with uh, Otatahi Community Housing Trust. So we're, we're here in Christchurch and we... Uh, support about 2,500 tenants and build about 100 homes a year. And I was involved from the very um, start of that organisation. So it was an organisation formed originally um, to move the Christchurch City Council housing stock into an entity that could obtain more government funding to support the operation and the redevelopment of that housing. And I was, I guess, picked by the uh, nomination committee as someone that had an entrepreneurial background because they, they were looking for that uh, they were looking for someone that had a bit of a healthcare background and so I could uh, tick that box as well 
And, and as part of my um, audiology experience, I had actually engaged with um, the community housing tenants in different ways as well as a, as a practitioner and supporting some of them with their hearing. So I had some some lived experience uh, with the, the current status of things. So, mm. so that was an interesting governance experience in the sense that most people will join an established board and kind of uh, work themselves into that culture and contribute in that way. But this was almost, I suppose, ideally positioned for me as someone who did like starting things up, that I got to, to work with others that had quite different experiences to me, but got to be part of you know, forming things from absolute zero. So we had no management team, we had no chief executive, we had no premises, we had no um, bank accounts, <laughs> we had absolutely nothing. So it really was from zero. And, um, and that, so that, I suppose, gave me the opportunity to almost develop a sense of what governance is and they're kind of the appropriate distance you have to have in governance from some of the day-to-day operations but in an incremental way so rather than starting straight away at that sort of governance level we almost sort of worked ourselves up from being an operational management committee to being a true governance board over mm. time it's interesting though because that you're right often you join boards and it's been going for 30 years or whatever and there is a culture you know there's a way that we do things around here and but that board that you're talking about, like there's a blank slate. You know, you're starting from the beginning, so you're kind of building it as you go. So I can see where that would be, yeah, really interesting. And I want to acknowledge one thing that you just said, which is I don't want to let it slip by, which is that you said that you'd been unsuccessful in applying mm. for roles because very often when we're talking with people or you know talking about our own experiences, we can just jump to the successes and only mention those. And I think it's important for people, even listening, to go like. Oh, okay, it, you know, he, he applied to things and didn't get them because that encourages me to apply to things, you know, and if I don't get it, well, that's okay, you can move on. And I guess the learnings I had from those uh, unsuccessful applications were that uh, every time you submit an application, it's an opportunity to uh, learn a, a bit about another organization because you do some research and things before you submit your application. So that's something you've gained. No one can take that away from you. You've learned something. Um, also, if you get to an interview stage, that's really a chance to, to form some relationships. And those relationships are actually fairly likely um, to go with you into the future regardless of whether you're the, the right candidate for that particular role or not. And mm. certainly there's other other governance things and other uh, opportunities I've been involved in that have come out of unsuccessful uh, interviews uh, mm. for roles. So I think those, those are the kind of things I emphasize to people when, yeah. when they're looking for those opportunities. Yeah, that's really good. And in a way, that's a theme which is coming through this episode in particular, which is that nothing is ever wasted. You know, like think of your metaphor class mm. and you thought at the time, I'll never use this. And now you realize that was actually a pretty important <laughs> class. And it's the same with us, you know, like you apply for things and then, you know, the, the serendipity of the circumstance leads to things that you can't predict. Yeah, as an overarching kind of principle, I have to say, as a young person, I, I felt the ends justified the means. That would have been uh, my, my saying. Uh, but now I, I hold quite a different view. Now I think it's all in the means because the ends, uh, what you think the ends should be might be wrong for once. So you might actually have an error in your, in your thinking of what it should be. Or but by the time you get there, the world might have changed and what's appropriate might be different anyway. Mm. And so therefore, again, I guess linking back to empathy, the way, the way that we do things I think is absolutely critical as much as whether you ever get to the end state that you think at this time is where you should be. Yeah. Well, I'd love to turn the conversation a bit to the DOT scorecard mm. and this, this concept, you know, I'm putting air quotes, <laughs> diversity of thought, because I know that you've read a lot about that. You've written a lot about that. You know, can you describe, um, I guess, how you decided to set that up as something that would be your focus and then tell us a little bit about what that actually is, what you're doing? Absolutely. So... This came, I suppose, from a number of different experiences kind of uh, converging. And so one was the fact that a lot of senior leaders in, in governance and executive roles uh, started saying, for me, it's not about diversity, it's about diversity of thought. But then what they would do is define diversity of thought as diversity of gender, diversity of age, or diversity of ethnicity. 
And so I, I thought, that seems kind of narrow. I mean, no doubt all those things impact on your thinking, but surely there's other things, going back to my multidimensional comment before, that impact on your thinking, so that sounds a bit limited. And then I had had a few experiences at that time working in different uh, decision-making group contexts, so, so boards and other, other teams situations, and experienced quite a range of different uh, um situations where some are quite positive sometimes you'll be in a situation where everyone's contributing uh, people are sort of building on each other's thinking you can sort of tell that where you start the discussion is not where you end up where you end up was a much better higher quality uh, opportunity than where you started and other times where you've got people around the table who are perhaps uh checking their phones when people are talking, not really attending to them. Some might be crossing their arms, sort of showing that they're not happy with something, but they're not saying why they're not happy with it. And thinking, well, those sort of situations, and that the way that people are sort of behaving in those environments, uh, that must no doubt impact on their ability to share information and work together. So maybe there's a diversity of thought link there too. And then I was at a, um, an event with a panel discussion, and one of the panelists just happened to say, just off the cuff, um, again, referencing diversity of thought, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could measure diversity of thought? And I thought, can we measure diversity of thought? And that sort of initiated a bit of a research project. And because I'd done my MBA, I guess I had some confidence in different uh, methodologies of research. And I, so I embarked on a research project around diversity of thought. So wrapping in sort of cognitive diversity, which kind of sits behind diversity of thought and the cultural elements as well. And I discovered this incredible connection in the existing uh, literature between complexity and diversity of thought. So when it comes to issues we're trying to solve uh, that are technical, uh, often we're best to apply expertise. So, uh, so I don't have a legal background, and so therefore if, if we need to draft um, some sort of legal agreement, I'm far better to turn to someone that's had a lot of experience and expertise in that area. Um, but there are other things we deal with that are genuinely complex. And so things like ecosystems, be they natural ecosystems or, or human ecosystems, are quite complex. Uh, people tend to be quite complex. So if you're appointing a, a CEO, uh, that actually involves a degree of complexity around uh, how will they actually perform you know, relative to other individuals in that same role. So... There's a lot of evidence, and it comes from different sources. So sometimes it's computer simulation, sometimes it's college experiments, sometimes it's uh, observational studies with board directors, uh, showing that if you have a group of people who have uh, diversity of thought, um, they can perform a lot better in a decision-making context than an individual expert uh, would, or even a, a group of experts would, because individual experts and groups of experts tend to converge in their thinking, whereas those that bring uh, different perspectives can figure out different ways of framing things, they can come up with different options, they can mitigate risks more successfully. So as long as you've got that potential plus the cultural elements, which is really based around psychological safety, uh, then we can get a lot better performance um, out of group decision making. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we um, had connected a couple of years ago now. Uh, actually, one of the guests on this show, Anne Rada, um, she's really doing a lot of amazing work with the arts. And thinking about, you know, painters, um, pianists, sculptors, poets, and the way that they approach the world. And so we did a little paper talking about, like, what would it look like if boardrooms acknowledged that having a creative type of person, you know, if they were on the board, what would that do to the boardroom discussion. So anyway, the paper goes into all that and you kindly gave us a few quotes from memory about some of these concepts. But it is, I think it really is worth highlighting that you're right, when we talk about diversity of thought, normally people are making an assumption that we're talking about a gender split, like the board has uh, you know, seven men and two women, or the other way around, or um, there's an age difference or there's ethnicity like those in some ways those are easier to measure you know looking around the boardroom but that next level is actually saying what about the life experiences of people right and what will actually a scientist is going to be different to a lawyer or an accountant so it's it's just a bit more um complex but yeah in, but in a good way that's right it's right it's going to a different level it's going to be beyond the superficial mm. And 
uh, it's, there's lots of research that shows that within um, a group of uh, women or a group of men, you actually can have greater variation across many dimensions in the way they think within the group of women than you would say between a female and a, and a male, mm. a single sort of one-on-one comparison. Just because, again, people have different life experiences, they hold different beliefs, they address problems in different ways. Yeah. And so we certainly can't make assumptions about sort of superficial characteristics. Yeah, yeah. the only pushback I would have on all that because um, I agree with it. Mm. So we're starting from that position. But I've seen some people use that in a negative way. And they've said, well, actually, we have six males who are in their mid-40s on this board. But there is a scientist and there's a, you know, a creative person there. So we have our diversity covered. And I think, actually, sometimes you have to allow for you know, a Maori Pacifica view on this board would challenge those six Pākehā males in a way that having another Pākehā male wouldn't. And same, like having a woman on that board would as well. And the only reason I mention it is I've seen it used in that way as well, where I don't think they're really getting it. So I've had the, I guess, because I've got the tool, because the DOT scorecard gives us the ability to actually put that to the test. So people can make that claim, can't they? They can say, well, we all have these different professional backgrounds or we all... Um, so therefore, despite the fact we look the same, we, we do actually think quite different. And uh, so I've, I've worked with boards and other teams and things that have made that claim. And, and sometimes, at least with my measures, they're correct. And often they're not correct. But at least then we have some evidence to kind of uh, support it either way. But I, I sort of divide diverse thinking into specific and uh, wide-ranging. So the kind of area that I work in is the wide-ranging area because that's the bit that relates most to dealing with complexity. But specific diversity of thought is really valid too. So as you're saying, if, if that particular group that you gave the example, um, perhaps having a you know Pacifica or a Māori um, individual involved uh, might be hugely you know uh, useful for addressing their strategy, and it may just be they're not actually doing a great job of understanding you know what they need. And the other aspect, of course, is that sort of social justice. I mean, people should have the ability to. You know, to be represented and to take part, and so I'm a, I'm a massive believer in that. Just from a purely social justice perspective, I don't think um, we we need to shy away from that. It's just the right thing to do, mm-hmm. and so we should always look to yeah to reduce barriers and enable people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah, there's, and there's no excuse for not doing that. As mm-hmm. a, but but I guess again. The thing is, if you have a photograph that looks like you've achieved a high level of diversity, you, you may or may not have actually achieved a high level of diversity of thought. Yeah, well, yeah. that's a, that's a great yeah. counter to that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Because sometimes it can become a box ticking tokenistic exercise of like, oh, but look at our you know numbers here or there, and yeah. It, but you know, all of this gets people thinking, and that's that's, that's, that's true. That's what we're trying. Which to is do. bring it to the surface. That's right, rather than just leaving it sort of implicit. And actually, some organisations I've worked with where they've been quite proactive um, in their broader diversity uh, recruitment policies. They have got some individuals that are quite different to the the other members of their group. Mm. Um, and one of the measures that we look at is a measure of how. So if we have a group of people, so let's say Stephen uh, Moe is involved in a particular governance board, uh, that governance board has, a say, a high level of diversity of thought, we can then uh, not attribute that to Stephen Moe uh, as an individual, but we can say uh, Stephen makes a greater or lesser contrib- contribution to that diversity of thought because Stephen Moe's combination of experiences, beliefs and ways of addressing problems are either more similar or less similar to the others involved mm. in that group. Uh, when we run that with um, organisational groups where they have sometimes you know, tried to be really proactive at bringing in people that uh, you know, are, are different in some dimension to the rest of them, um, they have successfully achieved that, uh, but sometimes the individual they end up with is an individual who actually is almost the amalgam of everyone else they've got in the group. It's like if you could find an absolute representative person, someone that has the average experiences, you know, beliefs and ways of addressing problems, it is that person. So they haven't, at least in those dimensions, necessarily increased their diversity of thought with that individual or individuals, even though you know they had the right intent, and they ha- and that they will of course bring other things as well. But mm. but if that's their, their goal, they they can miss the mark there if they're not actually looking for it. 
Yeah. Well, all this is a great segue into the practical side of what you do. Mm. So you're going out and you're actually talking with boards and groups, but can you just talk us through what that sort of engagement looks like? And, and keeping in mind, some people listening um, haven't gone there yet. No. You know, like, but, but maybe they'll be interested in finding out yeah. more about oh, what would this well, look I guess, like. I yeah. guess what's, what's the use case, I suppose, the first question. So the use case uh, for boards, it's often as an alternative to a alternative to a conventional uh, board review. So boards will often have an annual or every two-year review of their practices. There's different ways they do that. Um, this is, is one way that it's an external evaluation, so it's not just based on a self, you know, how do you think we're going? Um, and it's looking at their decision-making. So it's looking at whether they have diverse perspectives and how they're using them. And so the practical uh, nature of that would be that all the individuals involved in the board or other group would answer an online questionnaire. So it's a psychometric questionnaire, a little bit like a personality test, but it's measuring uh, different things. Um, it's not a long one, it only takes sort of five or 10 minutes for most uh, most boards. Um, and then we'd, we'd get them together for a debrief session. So no one gets to find out the results in advance of the session. So everyone comes along uh, not knowing uh, what they're going to find out. Uh, and we find that very successful for engagement. You can imagine so sitting on the edge of your chair, waiting to find out various um, pieces of information as we, we gradually share that with you. Uh, and they get a report afterwards. And, and usually there are some really strong action points taken out of it as well. And it depends, of course, it's very situational. So sometimes it's a case that if they're dealing with really, really complex um, opportunities and challenges, uh, they might, and they don't have a lot of potential for diverse thinking, they really need to look at bringing that in. And they may bring that in on a case-by-case -case basis. It may be when they're looking to recruit someone that we, we test their shortlisted candidates to see if, if they um, are going to bring more diversity of thought than, than others might. Mm -hmm. um, other times it's a culture thing. Sometimes it's a case that people aren't appropriately included in their decision-making. So some people are being left out of the process or not included um, as much as they should. Sometimes they're being over-included. Um, sometimes it's the fact that people don't feel psychologically safe, so they just don't actually feel that they can speak up or really speak their mind, that they might be uh, moderating or modifying uh, what they're saying um, when they're sharing with the rest of the group. So if we detect those things, then we can um, coach, I guess, them to, to change some of their practices um, to improve that. Um, and it's, it's similar process with other types of teams as well often it's used as part of a strategy day so it might might be the kickoff kind of activity that we do to um, set them up for success we want them to have really candid conversations and be constructive and uh, be authentic uh, with each other throughout the rest of their say a strategy off-site sort of situation uh, often it's used um I guess, in association with other diversity, equity and inclusion kind of initiatives. It's certainly not a replacement for that, uh, but the underlying philosophy is valuing difference. So we're trying to value difference in a way that really adds value. Mm, yeah, that's too many values there, but yes, a lot, <laughs> a lot of value. Uh, can't get away from value. Value is good. <laughs> and it, it comes back as well to the culture of the board as well, doesn't it? Because you can have a diverse board with lots of different perspectives, but if the chair is just slamming down on anybody who opens their mouth and says, no, 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 We're, we've ended that discussion. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Like, then you're left in a conundrum, aren't you? It's like... You can definitely do, yeah. A, a chair can certainly derail, you know, diversity of thought, yeah. or, yeah, whether the, or whether the, the CEO, you know, with the leadership team or the chair of a board. Um, similarly, yeah, you're very reliant on them following good practices, which means, uh, yeah, I guess, role modeling, um, maybe sharing things where they're not 100% um, certain about things. Sometimes excellent chairs actually can be very good at sort of holding back their views, which is often a good practice because they don't want to influence people. They want people to speak up and not be influenced by what the chair thinks or has said. Uh, but sometimes uh, when the chair does speak, they've had that opportunity to formulate such a well-polished uh, summary of things that they, they uh, look very coherent and uh, people kind of appreciate that. But then because they're so polished, other people feel sort of reticent to make their contribution because they're like, well, actually, I've only half formed this idea. Mm. You know, if I describe that to everyone else, I'm going to look like I'm not as smart as them or not as eloquent as them. Um, so in some ways, it's almost... Uh, 
uh, yeah, some of the best chairs, I guess, display a degree of vulnerability where they actually do, you know, share things that are not fully formed, mm. not not fully polished, as a positive to encourage others to contribute their their best and, mm. and ask their sort of stupid but not stupid questions. Yeah, no, I like that a lot because it does come back to this culture question of what, how does the board operate and things, and and I think there's something to be said um, for the board even writing down this is how we operate you know like a board charter type of thing but you know are we a are we a reactive board or are we a proactive board you know like do we just as news comes we respond to it and then we make a decision or are we thinking five years from now here's what it's going to be let's let's approach it you know it's kind of it's a subtle difference but it's actually pretty important to be clear how you operate I really hope we have a lot of uh, proactive boards out yeah. there, but uh, <laughs> I, I think probably the reality is a bit of a mixture, I imagine. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really good. So um, what we'll do in the show notes, we can put links to things. So we'll put a link to the website. I know you've got different resources and things. Um, one of the things that I think is really important in a board is to embrace the difficult conversations. And mm. what I try to do sometimes, sometimes on purpose, is provoke everybody to think, you know, like actually, I'm not sure I agree with what this person just said. Mm -hmm. And so that it introduces this element of conflict, which most of us want to brush over and not have. But that actually, by questioning how we're approaching something and, and being willing to go there, you know, and, and ask a hard question, I think it, in, you end up with much better outcomes than just sort of uh, it's okay. Management is handling that, and we'll just keep on to the next agenda item. Yeah, I would certainly endorse that. As far as uh, it's a red flag for me, if people are getting along too well, as far as the kind of tasks and issues and things they're discussing, if if they've mm. if things are going too efficiently and too smoothly, either it means that they're not dealing it with things at the right level, they're not dealing with the truly complex uh, things that boards should wrestle with, uh, or as as you say, people are just sort of um, not, not really engaging their brain um, fully. So yeah, so having someone, uh, whether it's a sort of a devil's advocate role or, or everyone just um, doing their bit to, yeah, to really challenge everyone's mm. thinking on the yeah. task, keeping it away from the person, not going to play the, the person, but you know, playing the task and the issues at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about the Institute of Directors. So the IOD comes up on this podcast a regular amount because I do a bit of facilitating for them and then I've learned so much from doing that but can you just tell us a little bit you know taking Canterbury as an example what what's going on at the IOD level in Canterbury and yeah well let's start with a basic question what is the IOD who's a member what type of people are involved so the IOD, the Institute of Directors, is, is a membership uh, organisation. It's been around for about uh, 35 or, or more years uh, in New Zealand, originally branched off from the UK um, IOD, um, but it's very independent now. It really started as a bit of an old boys club, I believe, and before my time. Uh, so I guess a group of people involved in, in directorships that would, would come together to you know, share their experience and their learnings. Um, over time it developed uh, courses in education like you're involved in. Um, but now you know, we have about uh, over 10,500 members. Um, we recognize that we, we serve quite a diverse membership, so from you know, charitable not-for-profit organizations through to listed uh, corporations. It's really around developing capability, and in different ways, different degrees of uh, formalization and in informal. Um, at, a, at a local branch level, so I, I'm the current chair of the Canterbury Branch Committee for the IOD, and I've been involved as a branch committee member for about six years. We're very focused locally on offering uh, opportunities for members to connect with each other because to support sort of formal learning, there's lots of informal learning and connections. And I certainly know in my governance journey to date that that's been supported by the, the connections and the conversations and things I've had. So we offer a, an events program and it's actually around 50 events a year which sounds like a ridiculously large number. That does um, sound like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> some, of them, some of them are smaller yeah. um, because we've found that people feel most comfortable if they're sort of around a table with 10 to 15 people. So some events of that sort of scale, others are more of a room uh, full of people. Um, we get all kinds of people. So some, uh, many people uh, have their own business. Um, 
everyone has a, you know some connection to governance in some way, of course, and interest. Uh, those like myself, when I joined, you know, sort of very uh, open uh, blank sheet of paper around uh, learning about governance. So some some are at that category. Um, some are aspiring, you know, to become. Uh, directors and paid roles themselves. Others are looking to improve their capabilities so they can contribute to a, a community organisation or their own uh, organisation or, or learn uh, more about how their organisation could benefit from good governance. So mm. people have quite different agendas uh, for their involvement. Uh, here in Canterbury, we have over 1,500 members. Um, we, we cover the geographical area from Christchurch across to the west coast and down to South Canterbury as well. Uh, we offer a number of awards. So we have the Emerging Director Award and the First Steps in Governance Award. And so these awards are for individuals who I guess show some interest and promise at different different stages of their, their careers. And it's a chance for them to obtain a board internship. Um, so that's sort of a real lived experience around the boardroom table in different types of organisations. They get uh, mentoring, they get some funding towards training as well as their membership mm. too. Um, and so really quite a good package. Um, and, and our Canterbury branch actually offers more of these opportunities than almost the rest of the country put together. It's sort of really been a focus for our branch because we understand there's value there and we really want to support people mm. um, and, and increase, I guess, the mix and opportunity for people. Um, it's It's been quite a, a moving and evolving space. I guess I've seen what's happening internationally with various other uh, institutes and New Zealand um, makes a really good contribution. We, we're certainly up there as far as our standards and the offerings and things that we have. Yeah, that's a great overview. Thank you. Um, what we'll do in the show notes, again, we can put links so people can click through if they're interested. Um, I think I joined about four years ago, and I've really enjoyed that involvement. And um, I then have done a second podcast for people listening. I do another one called Board Matters. And so there's 13 episodes, quite short, 10 to 15 minute deep dives um, with amazing experienced directors about what they do so i'll put a link to the show notes in the show notes to that as well but it's just good to hear about these networks and things that are out there because i think a lot of people don't necessarily know you know like what we were saying before if, if no one's ever told you how do you know about governance and that there's ways that you can improve your understanding that's right and there's and so people visit the iod website just google iod.nz or in, mm. sorry, in New Zealand, and uh, you'll, you'll find uh, resources there that the public can access generally anyway, even if you're not a member, there are some resources available as well. Yeah, and then the one other connection point that we have is that you've been organizing, I think with Justin Stevenson, uh, what would you call it, a governance group or a lunchtime session? A little bit like hearing advantage, it really sort of says what it is in the bottle, so it's um, so we call it the governance discussion group, yeah. um, and that's what it is really. So basically it's a group of, um, it sits uh, alongside the IOD, so it's not an IOD thing, it's our own thing, but it's really sort of an informal group that comes together for lunch once a month. We tackle a topic that has some relevance to governance. Often we have a, someone sort of lead a discussion, so we call them a, a discussion leader rather than a speaker necessarily, and the idea is that they might share some experience or some of their expertise with us, and that's just enough to kind of catalyze a really good sort of round-the-table mm. discussion. But it's an excellent, it's been an excellent developmental group because everyone learns uh, from each other, the individuals involved are quite um, constructive um, and supportive as well. And it started out very much for those that were sort of earlier in their governance uh, career and aspiring to do more. And now it includes those, but, but we actually have a kind of a full spectrum of those that are, you know, towards the other end and the very experienced uh, governors as well. So mm. it's got a lot more depth over time. And it's, it's actually had about um, 70 occurrences now. So we've been going for a while. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I always enjoy the, um, uh, not to overuse the phrase, but the diversity of topics, right? Yes, like, definitely. Because every, every month it'll, it'll jump from like, um, you know, sports governance to cybersecurity mm. to the one that I think I came originally and shared about was purpose-driven mm. structures and social enterprise. And so, yeah, it just gets people going. And one of the things I really, I, I have to say, kind of a highlight of my month is looking at the graphic 
that I think you put together, which is like the topic, but then you'll put some kind of funny, quirky thing, like it'll be an image from Star Trek and then the, the governance title or something, or it's just really random. So I, just so you know, I really enjoy opening I'm, it and wondering. I'm what so it's glad be. that at least one person is appreciating <laughs> those. So that's certainly my uh, my hobby. Uh, would be yeah, would be doing the the art for that. Uh, definitely no professional artist, but it's uh, it's my my version of doodling, I suppose, is creating some satirical attempt. Um, at describing something that could be a little bit dry, you say cyber cyber security, yeah. Um, but yeah, trying to uh, bring yeah, some but, life into but it. But throw in some robots, or, <laughs> you know, some random image. So I do notice it and I appreciate it. So just so you know, <laughs> it's all worth it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy. There's lots of different pressures and you got all these different roles and positions. Um, but we really appreciate the time that you've given up to come and share some of your life journey and also appreciate the, you know, the vulnerability that you've shown in sharing, you know, I wasn't successful here and then this happened. And I think that helps give us a sense of a person's life rather than just the veneer of, you know, in two minutes, tell me Lloyd what you're doing. We got to hear like the backstory in, you know, audiology and studying that and then selling the business and then doing the MBA. And so I think it just helps build up the picture and certainly if people are interested, they'll be able to click through and go to the website and have a look more. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Carol, Steve, it's been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lloyd. There was a whole bunch of content there, and I hope you were able to download some of those key concepts about governance and thinking about who it is that's around our boardroom tables. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to things that we talked about. And don't forget, there's hundreds of other episodes in the back catalog as well. Until next time. Thank you.